Father, it's good for us to be in your presence today and uh, not just here in this building, but in your presence. For those who are in the overflow or the masked only venue, for those who are watching online at home in whatever situation, for those who are not just here in Oklahoma City, but indeed around the world, watching our little gathering of uh, forgiven people who hunger after you, uh, we thank you for being able to assemble together. And I pray that even though some separated by distance, that they would sense the, the fullness of your presence and of the presence of brothers and sisters in Christ. I long for the day, and I, I, I know that we all do, when we can see each other face to face. I'm talking about soon, we hope, before you come back. And uh, I, I just realized myself personally how important that is when I remember Mike's face sitting right down here in front over here on the end and fill us with him. And as Jim said, we ache uh, because he's gone from us, but Lord, he is in your presence and fully whole. And Lord, we continue to lift up Phyllis and the family, and even as they make uh, arrangements, which are uh, obviously not set at this point, we pray for them. And we pray for ourselves, Lord, um, as we now hunker down in, in your word, uh, open your word, see what we can discover from an incredible love story that is really just a picture of the love story between Joseph and Mary and the birth of their, their son, Jesus Christ, and then the ultimate love story of you sending your son to be the sole sacrifice for our sins. Thank you that we have been singing about this, and thank you that at the end of our service we will celebrate by participating in, in the Lord's Supper and uh, taking the elements that remind us of the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I thank you for that and uh, pray now that as we enter into a, a really a continuation of our worship together that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Really, that's our only hope uh, from your word and from your spirit. Uh, and so we thank you and we praise you. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you've got your Bible, or again, for those of you who use a, a smart device, I'll just say it like that, a phone or uh, any kind of other smart device that you're looking at the book of Ruth. You've already turned there. We're going to be in chapter 3. This is the third message in an Advent uh, kind of a series, but a series that would stand alone. We could preach this any time of, of the year. And it, it would be something that we would get a lot out of. And I've, I've already gotten a lot out of it. My personal study, and I hope that as we have come together to spend about, oh, what, 35, 40 minutes, 45, 50 maybe, uh, sometime along there. Anyway, I, I, I hope that you have been blessed. We're going to go back and do a little review for those of you who haven't been there, and then we're going to jump into chapter 3. Um, chapter 1, what was the message there? As we looked at, uh, together, we looked at the whole circumstance around 
Elimelech and Naomi moving from their homeland to a foreign land, the land of Moab, an idolatrous culture, and with their two boys, and then Elimelech dies, the boys get married, they die, and Naomi is left with the two daughters-in-law, and then they begin to move back. One of them stays, and the other goes, and, uh, and it was a mess by the end of the chapter. It was not a pretty sight. And Naomi, if you go back and read that, if you haven't read that, it's worth the read, okay? Because Naomi it just is an example uh, of a lot of us, where we find ourselves from time to time in life. And you remember each week I've said this, that for those of us who are followers of Christ, obviously that's true for everyone, but sometimes as a follower of Christ, we kind of get the idea that once we receive Jesus and we've been transformed, we begin that process growing out of justification, we begin the whole process of sanctification, working out our salvation, and somewhere maybe it's some of the preaching that we get on the radio, we, we get this idea that, that the Christian life is a straight line. And so I've been saying week after week, it is not. And we, we know that, particularly those of us who have followed Christ for any length of time. And so what do we have to do in the midst of it? We have to trust that God has a plan. I told this story a couple of weeks ago, and I want to go back and kind of reiterate it. It's about a, an unknown guy and every man that could be an example of all of us. His name was George McCausland. Some years served as ago, some, uh, he, he served as the director of a YMCA in Pennsylvania, and, and it was a difficult situation. The YMCA was losing money, membership, staff, the whole thing. And so he was working. What do you do when those kinds of things happen? Well, for some of us, we give up. Others of us, we work harder. And so he was working up to 85 hours a week. He was just eaten up with his problems. Anybody relate? Finally went to a therapist. The therapist said, you're on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And so Finally, he was a believer, and finally he did what, probably what he should have done at first. He took a notebook, and he went out into the woods, and he started walking, and he started feeling better, and he sat down under a tree, and he wrote in his notebook, Dear God, today I hereby resign as general manager of the universe. Love, George. And he recounts the story a little bit later on, looking back at that moment, and he said with a twinkle in his eye, in wonder of wonders, God accepted my resignation. And I shared with you that first week, three weeks ago, that that's what a lot of us need to do. We need to resign as trying to be managers of the universe, and, and I, that sounds far out, but I, I know it can take a lot of different forms, trying to reform or help your children, take care of your parents, trying to get your co-workers shaped up 
as well as church members or families or friends, and we are exhausted trying to run the universe. And so was Naomi. And we get to the end of it, and we see that she just had little hope. That was chapter 1. Ended on a kind of a down note. But chapter 2, anybody remember the title? I tried to pick out titles that might be memorable. You're, you're like I am. I barely remember the sermon that I preached last week, but let alone the title. Anybody, somebody said it, A New Hope. A New Hope. I stole it after Star Wars, I'm telling you. But it really was a good thing. Let me go back and just read. this. By the way, this review is important. Let me go back to chapter 2 and just review and see what caused Naomi and, and therefore Ruth to have this incredible hope. So we, we find that in chapter 2, Ruth initiates going out into the fields to work. In fact, she asked permission of her mother-in-law, and her mother-in-law said, sure knock yourself out. Go for it. And she did. She went out, worked in the fields, and that's where she meets this guy named Boaz. Now, the indication in chapter 2 is she has no idea who this guy is. And so she goes home, and by the way, the Bible says that she just happened to come upon the field of Boaz. And we know what that really means. God's providence was at work. So she meets Boaz. She gleans. There's a little, you remember last week we talked about they meet and how Boaz initiated the conversation. And I encouraged the guys to, to, to be good at talking to everybody. I'm, and, and I confess to my own, sometimes my struggle when I go home, I, I deal with words all day long, spoken and written, and sometimes when I go home, I just, I, I'm out of words, but Jan's not. And, and, and so, it, do you understand what I'm saying? And so, for some of you guys, yeah. But we also see another picture of Ruth, and just incredible. So, let me just read for you because it's, it's really neat in chapter 2. Verse 17, she gleaned in the field until evening, and she beat out what she had gleaned. There's a picture here. I'm going to explain that in just a second. It was in about, about an ephah of barley. And she took it and went into the city. Her mother-in-law sought what she had gleaned. She also brought it out and gave her what food that she had left over after being satisfied. I don't know if you remember, but essentially, Boaz asked her out on a date. And he fed her. He gave her roasted barley, and she was satisfied. And she, really, she got a doggy bag and took it home. And here's the, the picture of Naomi getting the, the, the leftovers from her being satisfied. Now, listen to this in verse uh, 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. Wow, what a setup. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, oh, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. I told you the meaning of his name. Anybody remember the meaning of his name? And we just, it says he was a worthy man completely. It, that's inadequate for what else it means. It means that he was a mighty man. He was a strong man. He was a man of valor. 
just like God describing Gideon earlier on. In fact, he was a brave man. That's one of the words, and so that's why the title of this sermon today could be, because it's a lot about Boaz, it could be brave heart, because he really was a man with a lot of heart, and he was brave. So, blessed was, is the man, and the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi, you talk about, here's where the hope comes in. This is from last week. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose, now, whose kindness, this refers back to the Lord, has not forsaken, and this is so cool because we're going to see a little bit of this and try to understand some of the cultural nuances of, of the law of marriage, when someone dies, when a spouse dies, a husband dies. And here she is pointing back to God. Boaz is blessed, but you know what? We are blessing the name of God because he is so kind to not forsake the living, that's us, and the dead. Your husband, who died, Malon, and ultimately Elimelech my husband. Well, there's just a lot there. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of the redeemers. And that shows up. You know how many times that shows up? In the book of Ruth, that shows up 19 different times. And so in chapter 2, we were just talking about doing the right thing. Now, today, we, we could talk about looking to your Redeemer. Naomi's outlook has completely changed after the meeting with Boaz, and all of a sudden we see something like this happening to Naomi. She's about as low as you can be, and, and we don't fault that, by the way. We don't fault that. Weep with those who weep, all right? Quit trying to just pump people up to be energetic when they're really down in the dumps. Let God do that providentially, and that's what happened. And, and truly, Proverbs 30, verse 11, could be very descriptive of Naomi. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. He set her free, and it's beautiful. How? Why? Because of a guy named Boaz, a mighty man of valor. He is our kinsman redeemer. Now, let me just define it in, in, in as simple forms as I can, because sometimes we'll get hung up with some of these Old Testament concepts. Kinsman redeemer. If you want to write that down, put a hyphen in between. Kinsman redeemer. There was a law in the Old Testament and then growing out of the Old Testament that it sounds weird to us but this was so important for something we're going to say next week about legacy. It was really sad when the lineage died out. And so God set it up so that the lineage wouldn't die out. See, it was Elimelech's lineage. Boom, gone. Both, both of his sons were married to women who were barren for 10 years. Who's going to fix that? What can fix it? And here, here is one of the ways that God saw to it by another person who would step in. All of, this, all of this sounds strange, I know, 
I know it sounds strange, but it all points forward to another kinsman redeemer named Jesus. And we'll see the parallels. If your brother becomes poor, sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Part of that, too, was that when a a, a man like Malon died, left a wife, the brother was to step in and produce children so that the name wouldn't be wiped out. But what was the problem? It was not only Malon that died, it was Chilion. And that's why it was so important and why Naomi took such heart. God has provided a kinsman redeemer. She already knew about him. When Ruth said his name is Boaz, her spirits brightened. Now, three things. If you want to know more about a kinsman redeemer, and all of this is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll come back at the end of it to show how these things are fulfilled. There are three things, three requirements for a kinsman redeemer. We're talking about the actual act that had to happen that figures in in chapter 3, okay? Because it's important. There's, there was another kinsman redeemer who was actually closer. Number one, here, here's, here are three things that have to be true, had to be true back then. Number one, they had to be a close relative. The ideal was a brother. But if a brother wasn't available, it could be a brother-in-law, a kinsman, a cousin, somebody like that. So they had to be a close relative. Here's another thing. They had to be able to redeem. They had to have the resources. We know Boaz was a man. He was a close relative, and he also was a man of considerable wealth. So he was able to do the work of redeeming. The third thing, this is, this is, this is so important, he had to be willing. We're going to see how this plays out. So, number one, kinsman redeemer, like Boaz, had to be a close relative. He was able to redeem, willing. Well, at the first, it really doesn't seem like it. So, let's jump in. You see the outline there that's in front of you. We're, gonna, we're just going to read these passages of Scripture. I don't know any other way to do it to get an idea. We won't read the whole thing, but the majority of it. And let's jump in with chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And this, if I, if I said the kinsman redeemer, the, the law of the Leverite marriage sounds weird, this sounds like a really weird story. But hang on, because it has a purpose. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, by the way, two months have gone by. She lived with her mother-in-law, which is pretty significant. And every day she went out to the barley harvest. So at the end of the barley harvest, two months have gone by. And Boaz still is a nice guy. He just hasn't done anything toward the privilege and responsibility of being a kinsman redeemer. No judgment, okay? He just hasn't done that. Okay, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek that it may be well with you. Naomi was back here and she was thinking about this whole thing. 
and so, so she wanted Naomi, uh, Ruth, to come to a place of rest, which she couldn't do without marrying Boaz. Verse 2, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. And then she takes the initiative. She's daring some might look at this and say she was a meddling mother-in-law. Sometimes desperate times cause or cause for desperate measures. And by the way, there is n- you need to see this. There is nothing wrong. There is nothing out of whack with what she is saying. She's merely taking the initiative so that she can move the needle in the relationship between Boaz and Ruth. So, she's very practical. By the way, sometimes we hear things about Christians, no, they're just otherworldly, they're really not practical. Christians ought to be the most practical people in the world. And she was. So, what, what advice does she give to Ruth, and this goes back to chapter 2 and all of the things about the kind of woman Ruth was. Remember, she had been working for months out in the barley fields. I'm sure she had taken a bath from time to time. Probably, I hope. But for sure this night, when she was going to go visit Boaz, verse 3 is very, very practical. Wash yourself. Put on some perfume. Well, that's what anoint yourself means. And put on your cloak. I, my guess it was the cloak she had just washed and cleaned. And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Now, again, we're about to read some stuff. There's no, nothing going on that is inappropriate. And when you read that Boaz is eating and drinking, it doesn't mean that he's drinking himself drunk. I... I, I've seen people comment on these things, and I'm horrified. Sexual innuendo and all the rest. No, no, no. None of that stuff. Okay. Do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. After he's done the thrashing, and then he's going to be tired, he's going to eat and drink, and much like you guys, well, maybe, I, I don't know, it was like me on Christmas afternoon after I had just finished eating and drinking, and what, what did you guys want to do, even if you didn't do it? Take a nap. Boaz was going to be very satisfied. He's going to lay down for a nap. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. This is verse 4. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. This is such an incredible picture. It goes back to chapter 2, verse 12 where it talks about salvation in terms of being under the wing, the covering of God. Basically, what Ruth, you know what Ruth is doing? She's proposing to Boaz. You say, well, that's, that's, not, that's, not, what, that's not what I want. When I fall in love and when I get engaged, I want to, you know, we're going to go to some exotic place. Even if we stay in town and my fiancé is going to, to, to just 
you know, lavish me with words of love and affection and adoration. He's going to propose to me. Well, Boaz just wasn't there, and I don't know why. He, he was still a great guy. He just, he, he had to know he was the kinsman redeemer, but for whatever reason, he, he was hesitant she replied to Naomi, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor, did just as her mother-in-law had commanded. When Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry, and he went to lie down at the end of the heap, uh, the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, this is almost comical. I just love the way the Bible is so real. At midnight, the man was startled. I don't know. Maybe he kind of woke up and his feet were cold or I, I don't know. He turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? <laughs> and she answered, I am Ruth. She didn't say, I'm Ruth the Moabitess. She said, I am Ruth, your servant. Here's the proposal. And here's the picture of us crying out to God for salvation. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are my Redeemer. I'm just blown away with that beautiful picture. Now, let me just, you know, go back and, and again, I was trying to figure out why, why was... Why was he hesitant at all? I, you know, Ruth was an incredible woman, a, a woman worthy of, of example. And then it dawned on me, well, Bo, Boaz, he reminds me of me. Now, maybe you guys cannot relate. But when Jan and I were dating, when I left for active duty in the Air Force, and we continued to correspond, and do you know how we corresponded back then? We wrote letters. And every week, when it came my turn, I could use the phone. It was a pay phone. And I had to do reverse charges. Do you understand what? No. Some of you don't understand what that is. Would you, would you, accept, would you accept and pay for the call? And so that's how we would communicate. And over the, the time our, our relationship grew, that, you know, it's... You can grow a relationship at a distance. I surely did. And so I come home from, you know, receiving my commission and come home and I visit her. And I was kind of like a Boaz. I wasn't nearly as great as he was. But I, I just was hesitant. And I, I didn't, I did how do you know? How do you know this person is the exact right person? My background was kind of checkered in terms of divorce situation and all the rest of that. And I don't want to end up like that. How? How do you know? And I was ambivalent. I really was. I came back to break up with her. She's laughing. It was, I'm telling you, this was a painful time for me. And so I can relate to Boaz, I, you know, for whatever reason. And, and I just, I, I didn't know what to do. So I came back and I, I, I admired so much about her. I really did. And so we're sitting there talking one night, and, and, and she blows me away with this question. She said, Marty, when you write me, 
when you talk to me. You sign your letters, I love you. When you finish talking to me on the, on, on the phone, you say, love you. What do you mean by that? Uh, yeah, um, uh, well, I, I mean, I really, I really love so many things about you. <laughs> Not particularly the best answer. <laughs> I really said this. I love you like a Christian sister. <laughs> stupido. <laughs> Muy stupido. Oh, my. And she said, she said this. I understand all of that. But it's confusing to me, so don't ever say I love you without following it with will you marry me. You know what? Was she proposing to me? No, she was just, she was just telling it like it is and to get me, to get the needle to move. One way or the other. We continued to talk, and it wasn't, it was that night when I finally, I realized, and I said, I love you, will you marry me? She said yes. Okay. Just so so we can understand, boy, let's move on. We've got to finish this, hopefully today, and still take the Lord's Supper. So, let me read. Chapter 3, forget that. Put that in the past. We need to move on. I I know that some of you guys can really relate to that, but um, chapter 3, verse 10. Let me read verses 10 through 18. And look at the title, A Loving Response, The Heart of a Redeemer. And again, we see so much about Boaz that is uh, so admirable. And he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness. What kindness? reminding him of his responsibility, greater than the first. And he says something, in not having gone after young men, whether rich or poor. Basically, he was saying, what another trait that I so admire. You've had two months, and you could have had any guy in town, younger guys than me, far more desirable than me. But you waited on your kinsman redeemer. Girls, I think I said it last week, young, young ladies, and even girls that are a lot, lot younger, hear, hear God's word and your pastor when he says, wait for your Boaz. He was basically saying, you could have taken the easy way and gotten married you'd be taken care of, but you wouldn't have been taking God's way. And there's a lot to that. I'll just leave it with that. Verse 11, now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now watch what he does. He also protects as well as reminds himself. And now it is true that I'm a redeemer, but he comes clean and she, I don't think she knew this, yet there is a redeemer, another kinsman redeemer that is closer in relationship than I. Remain tonight in the morning. I don't want you leaving in the middle of the night. Somebody might see, they might talk. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. 
boy, self-sacrificing. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. He's not hesitant in this. He just sees his responsibility. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning. Again, fully appropriate. Boaz protected her purity because he was a man of integrity. And if you see anything else in that verse, you come back to to just what I said. She arose before anyone could recognize another. It was still almost dark and said, let it not be known that the woman coming to the, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He was protecting her, much like, you know, much like Joseph did, who could have divorced Mary, but he didn't. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, and he took responsibility and took her as his wife. And he said he just wanted to leave her with a gift, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. She held it, measured out six measures of barley. That was a lot. I've heard different things, read different things. That could have been like a a huge toe sack full. Um, And so she held it out. He measured out six measures of barley, put it on her. And she went to the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, this is Naomi again, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, the matter with your closer kinsman redeemer. As for the man, will not rest until he has settled the matter today. He was going to fulfill his obligation, not hesitatingly, but very, very willingly. Boy, I tell you, what a difference a kinsman redeemer can make. Now, let's finish this part of the story. We're going to jump into chapter 4 in this next week talking about a legacy. This will overlap in these last comments. And, and I can't... I, I can't do it justice, but we'll, we'll try to learn something from it. Look at the title of this. This is a cost. This was costly. It pictures sacrifice, the sacrifice that the Redeemer paid for us. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down. This is chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, the Redeemer of whose, whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. He turned aside and said, uh, and sat down. Verse 2, he took 10 men from the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. This is kind of like the town uh, hall meeting or a council where they were going to, to affirm the business transaction that was going to go on that day. Then he said to the Redeemer, he's telling it in two parts. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land, you remember that verse from Leviticus, that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, but in the presence of the elders and my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I will come after you. And the other guy said, I want that piece of land. You may not see it just from that little 
those little words, he, he show, he's showing his character unlike Boaz. I want that land. It's going to add to my estate. He was not being sacrificial, and we'll see that in the next verse, verse 5. Then Boaz says, second part, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also require Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead, Elimelech, in his inheritance. He shows his colors, verse 6, then the Redeemer said, I can't redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I can't redeem it. Here's the, here's the picture. If he had redeemed Ruth along with the land, he got the land. He also gets Ruth as a wife. The son that would be born to Ruth and this unnamed, unknown person, there's no legacy left, by the way, and this is what we're going to talk about this next week. No legacy. But if that had happened, then guess what? All of the, let's say that he had another son, but that son died. All of his inheritance would go to the descendant of Elimelech. His name would be wiped out. While the descendants, the legacy of Elimelech, would have been maintained. That's why he denied, he said, I turn it down. Why don't you take it and do it? Now, th this is interesting, and, and it shows, we'll, we'll talk about it more next week. This was the custom in former times, verse 7, in Israel concerning redeeming, exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Kind of. If you look back at Deuteronomy 25, 9, that's not all of it. This, the taking off of the sandal, it says the woman that was, was turned down, she would take off the sandal and spit in the face of the man who refused his responsibility to redeem. It's incredibly shameful. Just mentions the sandal here, but when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. That's the other guy. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon. And Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate Here's where you begin to see the sacrifice of Boaz. His own name? No. To perpetuate the name of the dead, Elimelech, in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. You, you know what this is a picture of? The gospel. You, you could call Ruth the gospel according to Ruth. This is, this is talking about atonement. This is, a, this is talking about what the Lord Jesus did when he came to earth and took on human flesh. 
And this is why he tells us to exemplify this life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself. And taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Do you see the parallel? We're, we're all Ruths and Naomi's. We don't have, we are broke. We are absolutely destitute. We do not have the resources to help ourselves, to save ourselves. We're, we're not just at zero, broke. We're incredibly in debt. Who in the world can help us? We've got to have a kinsman redeemer. I gave you three qualities. Does Jesus fulfill those qualities? Well, let's see. Is he a close relative? Hebrews, Mark, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Jesus himself said this, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother. He is close. Is he able? Let me ask you something. Is Jesus rich? Uh, let's not get into the, you know, the junk so-called prosperity gospel. I'm not talking about that. Is Jesus rich? Jesus is God, and Jesus is as rich as God is. God owns the cattle. How many hills? Yeah. That's just a big word that means all of them. He not only owns the cattle, he owns the hills. He owns everything. Yeah, I would say Jesus has the resources. Carol Cutler, this is one of your favorite verses. You quote it so many times when you pray, and I love it. He is able to do in your life, in your debt, in everything that is going on, far more abundantly than all we can ask or even think according to the power at work within us. Yeah, I would say Jesus is able. Last thing, is Jesus willing? You know, I, I talk to people sometimes who have really gotten way, way down into sin, and they, they wonder if Jesus really would, would even want them, would want to save someone like them. And that's where I love to come back to the story of the leper found in Mark chapter 1, the leper that came to Jesus, this outcast like Naomi, like Ruth, were outcast foreigners and all the rest. Nobody wanted to be around them. So the guy comes up beseeching Jesus and falling on his knees before him and saying, are you, are you willing? I've heard all these stories about you, Jesus. Are, are you willing I know if you're willing, you can make me clean. What, what did Jesus say? What does he say to you? 
moved with compassion. Wow. Boaz is a great picture. He's only a little picture. He can't compare with Jesus. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. I wondered last week, would he have touched him during the pandemic? This guy was a leper. And he said to him, these are the most important, not the words, uh, be, clean, be, be cleansed. This is the most important word. I'm, I'm willing. Christian, I, I'm willing. A person who's here today and, and, and you don't know Christ, listening in today and you don't know Christ, he is willing. He's your closest relative. He has resources beyond imagination and he is willing to meet you at the point of your need. Ruth is a love story, but it's a love story that points to the greatest love story of God sending a man. Let me end with this story, and uh, then we'll enter into the, the Lord's Supper. Um, found this, and I, I thought it's, I don't know if it's true, probably not. It's probably just a preacher story that found its way into something that I read last week. Um, but it's a story of a, of a man who was trying to cross a river on a very, very cold, windy day. And the water was, in this river was just boiling. And, and his, his boat capsized. He was thrown into the water, but he was somehow able to climb up on top of the boat and hang on. Now, he knew that 15 minutes down river was a waterfall. And if he didn't get off the boat, he was going to perish. There were three men that were on the shore, and they saw this guy capsize, hang on to the boat. They said, we've got to do something. One of them had a big rope. They said, there's a bridge right down here. And they ran down. They got into right, right on the place, on the bridge where they could lower the rope. They got it right in front of him, and the rope, as he was going by toward the waterfall, the rope just hit him in the face and went on by because his hands were so frozen, he had no power to reach up and grab the rope. And the three men looked at each other and said, we shouldn't have just lowered a rope. We should have lowered a man. You think about the gospel. You think about Christmas. God didn't just lower us the rope of self-help, of religion, of trying to be good. He lowered a man who, when we were powerless... He reached out and he grabbed us to save us. Father, as we take these words from your word, from the Christmas story and all of this, the book of Ruth, into our hearts, we, we know that we celebrate every week and we should every day the power of the gospel to save. And I, I, I would put myself at the first of the line 
to be the deepest in debt and absolutely powerless. But I am grateful that you in your love and compassion said, I am willing and I'm able. And you sent Jesus to die an atoning death, to do something I could never do so that I could be forgiven and know you. And Lord, as we month by month as a church family gather together, and even at home we get perhaps a cracker and a glass of water, um, and we celebrate what you have done. We celebrate your, as my nine-year-old grandson was talking about this week when I was asking him about, what, what does this mean? What does the Lord's Supper mean? And he says it means that we look at the broken body and the shed blood. Even at that age, he knows. So that's what we do in these few minutes that remain. We take these little cups and this little wafer of bread. We read a scripture. We remind ourselves of the incredible sacrifice of Christ on the cross, his body broken, his blood shed for us. So help us as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. In Jesus' name, amen.